certainly think so. I think we're moving now into a political arena. And I think that what Negroes are now tampering in, what they're tampering with, will touch the entire country to be very precise. For example, many Negroes who have registered to vote have been evicted from their lands in Lowndes County. People who have worked on, on plantations for 35, 40 years because they've registered to vote have been evicted. So that raises a philosophical question, not only for us, but for the whole country. Can property-less people be made as equal as property owners through the vote? Because this is the first time in the country that Negroes will be organized for their own political interest, and they will form their own party and move along those interests as they see fit. It is unlike Negroes across the country who are registered in the Democratic Party, but are not organized for their own interests. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. America's chickens! Coming home! Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. You're gonna sing to swim, you're gonna learn the truth, no matter what you do, you're gonna learn the truth. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Passes a three-strike law and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, 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 not God Bless America, God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground. And now, Janice Graham. You can't trust this president to do the right thing, not for one minute, not for one election, not for the sake of our country. You just can't. He will not change. And you know it. History will not be kind to Donald Trump. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Our Common Ground and America has defeated Donald Trump. You couldn't trust that president, not once, not ever, and he is going to be gone. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground tonight. We've got uh, such a wonderful program uh, waiting for you. We are doing 
Tonight, Black Political Construction Ahead is part two of our 22 election review. And our panelists from Wednesday night when we did the first part, they're all returning, except for Carl Dix of the Refuse Fascism and uh, Revolutionary Communist Party may not make it back to New York City. He is en route from Philadelphia where he was managing the crowds and protests and signing people up for what is to come. And that is what we're going to be talking about tonight. Our panelists will take us a little deeper, a little further. And we are so glad that you are here with us tonight. I'm elated that there is a a possibility that the chaos will go away, that the confusion, but simply because Donald Trump will be no more does not mean that Trumpism is going away. Let me tell you how it happened. It happened with Uh, Joe Biden receiving 50.5% of all the votes cast to get him to 273 electoral uh, electoral votes, and Donald Trump received 47.7% of all votes cast to get him to 214 Electoral College votes. And we're going to talk about that tonight. Our our guest panelists include Dr. James L. Taylor, who is chair of the Department of Politics at the University of San Francisco. Pascal Robert, the thought merchant, contributor and writer for the Black Agenda Report. Dr. Kimberly C. Ellis, Dr. Goddess, Uh, she is the initiator, manager, and director of Hashtag Black Politics Matter, a movement for black liberation, Um, and we are so glad to have them. As we come into the broadcast tonight, 9.889 million cases in the United States of the COVID-19 coronavirus. 237,000 deaths, 237,000 deaths. And as um, November 6th, new cases were reported this week. Uh, November 6th was yesterday, on Friday, 137,797 new cases. And because of the incompetent mismanagement of this pandemic, people all over the world, and especially in Times Square, Boston Common, uh, Black Lives Matter Plaza in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, Los Angeles, San Antonio, um, are celebrating, celebrating that. Trump has been defeated. Some of them are celebrating that um, uh, Joe Biden was elected, but most of them are celebrating that Trump has been defeated. And I'm going to give people on this program tonight the room because, you know, take the time to exhale, 
because it's been, it's been a rough, rough road. The Republicans ga- garnered 12 seats in the House of Representatives, and um, we're still waiting because there may be a runoff around um, the U.S. Senate. Aunt Lydia is still on the Supreme Court. So I'm going to uh, say congratulations to President-elect, who will be the 46th President of the United States, Joe Biden, and his Vice President, Kamala Harris. And we're going to be talking tonight about who's talking about what, because one of the things I'm interested in is how come they're not talking about how proud Willie, Willie Brown, who's the former mayor and speaker of the leg- uh, speaker of the House in California. Why didn't why are they not talking about how he should be proud because he was Kamala Harris's first political boss. Yep. So we can talk about a number of things and here's the format. Uh we're gonna be with the panel um in the first hour. At the top of the hour we're gonna take a break. Uh, and in the second hour, we're going to wrap up with the panel. Um, Dr. Ellis may have to leave her us because she has to travel early in the morning. See, when you're working with activists, you have to really uh, work it. And um, we'll take your calls at 347-838-9852. For those of you who are out there listening on your smartphones, if you'd like to join our chatters in our chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. And before I introduce our guest panel tonight, uh, I do want to uh, apologize to our listeners on TruthWorks Network last night We're not sure what the technical glitch was, and 15 minutes into the Alpha show, it just shut down. It shut down, and Alpha was ready to go, and we couldn't fix it. So we apologize to you, and Alpha uh, apologizes to you. We do extend an invitation to you to join um, our archive here at Our Common Ground and at TruthWorks Network, as well as Power Views. Uh, Power Views is our channel to listen, learn, and liberate. So thank you for being with us, and we hope you're getting a good seat in the chat room. There are seats up front. Tonight on our panel, uh, Pascal Robert, the thought merchant. He is a contributor uh, to Black Agenda Report, The Washington Spectator, and Huffington Post. He is a um, graduate of Hofstra University and Boston University School of Law. He is keen with the political eye. Also on the panel is Dr. James L. Taylor. He is from Glen Cove, Long Island. He likes to say that. He's the author of the book, Black Nationalism in the United States, from Malcolm X to Barack Obama. He is the chair of the Department of Politics at the University of San Francisco. Um, He has published articles on many, many subjects, and his teaching and research scholarly interests are in religion and politics in the United States, 
race and ethnics politics, African-American political history, social movements, political ideology, law, and public policy. Uh, The third person on our panel tonight returning for us is Dr. Kimberly C. Ellis. You know her as Dr. Goddess. She's affectionately known as Dr. Goddess, and she is a scholar of African Africana Studies, uh, of American and Africana Studies. She is an activist and entrepreneur. She is the initiator of hashtag Black Politics Matters. She is the producer of Your Beautiful to Me, a feature documentary film, and she has her work has and her writings have appeared in Alternate Ebony and Black Enterprise. And I'd like to say that she is an intellectual inquisitor, which leads her to some very interesting activism. And we certainly, certainly um, welcome our panelists. And I'm going to open it up to them uh, Dr. Taylor, you're on the air. Dr. Ellis, you're on the air. And what happened to the thought merchant? He was here uh, at 786. Um, for some reason, um, he has dropped, but I'm sure he'll come back. I'm going to ask Dr. Taylor and Dr. Ellis, uh, starting with Dr. Ellis, to kind of summarize what America is experiencing today and why and, and what we face, because this part of this discussion at Our Common Ground is black political construction ahead. Dr. Ellis. Dr. Ellis, your mic is on. Okay. Dr. Kimberly Ellis, can you hear us? Okay. Let's go to Dr. I'm here. Taylor. Dr. I'm here. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> she might have stepped away. Yeah, well, I, I guess I can get started if you want. Um, yes, thank you. I, thank you, Dr. James you know, Taylor. I, I think, um, thank you, um, and it's great to be back on your show. I think uh, the country is in a in a in a in a in a, in a bunch of different places, uh, but the, the main ones are, uh, I think, people are very happy across the board, across the country. Even those who didn't vote for Biden, I'm not talking about the diehard Trump people, but those people that voted for other reasons. Um, other than racial reasons, uh, I think there's a general goodwill towards Biden, um, and uh, I think you know what we're seeing is a general relief, as you said in the lead-in, um, that you know people are exhaling, uh, you know, thankful that democracy worked, that voting worked, that different groups like labor, um, you know, women, um, uh, you know, uh, um, labor, women, Latinos. Uh, all of those other groups, you know, came out significantly enough, but it was the African-American group, both men and women, um, that, 
you know, crossed the line and, and brought Joe Biden across the line from the primaries all the way through um, until he was dependent on Philadelphia and, and Pittsburgh and Harrisburg to cross the line, and they took him over. It, literally, it was it was black Philadelphia. Uh, and Biden acknowledged today in his, in his speech that, uh, you know, black America had his back and he will have their back. And, um, and that's what people want to hear. And I don't know if I've heard a president ever say that before. And I think more than any other time in history, we can actually hold Biden uh, accountable because people are highly mobilized. They've been highly mobilized. Uh, and the very groups that sort of showed up well, uh, like young people, who had record turnouts this recent election um, between 18 and 30, um, African-Americans, uh, black men as, as voters, black women as voters, um, all had record you know, turnouts in terms of total numbers. Um, we had a, a, a number of voters that was unprecedented in American history. 150 million people voted, and 75 million of them voted for um, Joe Biden. And I'm not really troubled by the number of people that voted for Trump as a sign of full racism. I do think, as a student of political science, that people need to acknowledge that even if it were you and me, um, you would still have a similar kind of breakdown in terms of who voted for whom, because you would be the Republican nominee and I'd be the Democratic nominee. And what people underestimate is the power of party identification. So a lot of that support Trump got, every Republicans have got. White women have voted for every Republican, not Trump. And that's why they voted for Trump in spite of his awfulness, is because they vote for the, as white women, a majority of white women have always voted for the Republicans since 1964, um, with, one, with one exception. So, you know, I think... You know, like people, the, the initial reaction when it wasn't settled, people were about to turn on black men and say, oh, 18% of black men, that was the first reaction, was 18% of black men voted for Donald Trump? We can't believe this. And, uh, of course, it was black men and women in Philadelphia, um, in Atlanta, in other key sta- you know, cities that, you know, that had a very important impact on, on the ultimate outcome of the, of the election. So I think, um, you know, African-American people saved democracy in America uh, because there were enough people willing to let it go uh, in, a, in a Trump direction. Uh, I think Trumpism will continue, like you, like you say, but I think it will now be marginalized. I think he has lost some of the power that made him um, – what he was. I think there's, like I said before, audience corruption. The audience also played a role in Donald Trump's rise in terms of, of the, you know, his behavior in the presidency and how he just continued on. Um, they also have to be feeling uh, some sense of loss or, you know, hopefully remorse as they see the country celebrating, as they realize they were attached to something that was awful. And, and I think Biden has to make sure Americans know this was an awful moment in history and we can't go back to it. And so I think, um, you know, a weight is lifted off of a lot of people's shoulder today. A lot of people are dancing, listening to music, celebrating in Oakland, all around in, in the streets of Oakland. People are dancing, uh, just hugging each other, you know, not practicing social distancing, unfortunately, but people are, are really excited that at least the bleeding uh, can stop, and maybe we can begin to 
turn you know turn the table or turn turn the, you know make a turn and, in a different direction uh you know because the tone of Donald Trump and what he was doing you know i mean cutting off critical race theory uh attacking the 1619 project establishing a racist 171776 project complaint you know um uh taking you know f- firing people for wanting to take down the names of confederate um generals from military bases where most of the workers in the South going to those bases are black every day, like uh, Fort Bragg. Um, and so, you know, Donald Trump is the most openly proud. I mean, we've had some really sick racist presidents. Andrew Jackson was awful. Uh, Andrew yeah. Johnson was awful. And Woodrow Wilson was awful. These were racist, racist, open. And they were racist like Trump, all of them. But they didn't have, even as president, the microphone in terms of Twitter and modern television coverage to influence everyone. If you say something racist in 1834, you know, the room hears it. If you say mm-hmm. something racist as president in 2020, the whole world hears it, including our children. So um, I think, you know, black people as voters were focused the entire time I mean, there's no moment since Donald Trump has been president that black folk weren't leading the charge against him. From from the night he lost, black men and women were the number one and number two voters in in, in giving Hillary Clinton a plus 2.7 million vote uh, popular vote win, margin win, right? Mm-hmm. Black people, uh, black members of the uh, Congressional Black Caucus impeached Donald Trump. And then our young people took to the streets and created a crisis situation that has something to do with what happened today. Those young people protesting and marching, everyone wants to blame them as if that has something to do with helping the Republicans do, you know, perform a certain way. I don't think you can reduce. Um, yeah. Even I heard there was a, a, a big fight between Democrat moderates and Democrat um, progressives in Washington D.C. Uh, as a consequence of the election, and. Uh, the moderates were blaming um, the um, idea of um, abolishing the police. And, and the person said, I don't want to hear that again. And the progressives were like, no, the problem is you didn't go far enough, uh, progressive. You went too far, yeah. you know, in yeah. the center. Yeah. Dr. Taylor, let's let's uh, switch over to go to Dr. Uh, Ellis. Um, and I want people to know that this election was of such great co- consequence that I received more email this week uh, since Wednesday because of our broadcast on Wednesday night who said we need to continue this conversation. 62 emails. We need to uh, continue this conversation, and you need to bring that, that, that panel back because we didn't finish the discussion. Dr. Kimberly Ellis, welcome back to Our Common Ground. Thank you so much for having me, BJ, and it's nice to be among the august and robust uh, group of intelligent brothers and sisters again. Um, we've just been celebrating over here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I had to spend the last two days reminding folks that there are black people in Allegheny County, and we live in Pittsburgh, and uh, that not everybody lives in Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, Allegheny, <laughs> Allegheny County brought it in. 
I gave you yes. a shout out. I, I gave you a shout out just earlier. I said, pitch, I said, uh, I said, black folk in in Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Harrisburg delivered this delivered the state. Um, <laughs> that's that's some real love. You are a rare, you are a rare person. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah. Uh, it has been great because honestly, we we really made a concerted effort to, I mean, I don't, you know, a lot of people, they don't know if I'll tell the story that there was a Pennsylvania Black Votes Coalition. And, you know, earlier there had been a Pennsylvania Votes Coalition, right? But that's not good enough to have just a general coalition that, that does not speak to the cultural needs, wishes, desires, and aspirations of African-Americans in this country and specifically in Pennsylvania. So it was my state representative, Jake Wheatley, who represents the 19th legislative district, as well as my uh, county council, Allegheny County uh, Councilman DeWitt Walton, who works for the um, ACE, well, he's the executive director of the A. Philip Randolph Institute. And it was actually an elder um, from, I think, United Steelworkers that funded a large part of, of our work. And then one of our partners, um, One Hood Power, which comes from One Hood Media and Jasiri X, series a rapper, um, but his wife works for the Pittsburgh Foundation. And even before then, you know, he just had the popularity and uh, he and I shared a lot of national stages together. And thankfully, like, our monies coalesced together. And those larger organizations help boost those of us who have smaller or, in my case, boutique organizations. Um, but we all worked together. We had weekly calls, and we developed um, satellite offices with the Board of Elections, and we created specific satellite offices right in the middle of black communities here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Allegheny County. And did it make a difference? Absolutely. I mean, we basically had, like, a block party you know, a voting block party. Um, and my birthday is October 17th. So I used it um, as an invitation to come and celebrate celebrate your, my birthday with me by coming to vote early. And nice. that's what we did. I mean, we, we had a ball. And, and, and it was, I mean, you know, in organizing, we say that culture eats strategy for breakfast. I think that oftentimes there are people in the Democratic Party who they're great at strategy and they know strategy very, very well. But if you are, if you don't know black people and you don't know black culture, culture is what eats strategy for breakfast. Like, and so we implemented that. We we brought all of our culture to uh, to all of our activities. And I have to tell you, you know, Latasha Brown, uh, the co-founder of Black Voters Matter. Fund, they did that. I am so proud of that organization. They they have a roving van. They did a full tour. They were giving out T-shirts, masks, you know, fans, paraphernalia, wristbands, and just the language, the language that has big and bold, black voters matter, right? I mean, and have at the top, I matter, you matter, we matter. And on the back of the T-shirt, it's about us and us being, you know, capital U, capital S. That that resonated with, with all of us. You know, it resonates with us as a people because it's like it's not about nitpicking, you know, Kamala's record as a prosecutor or trapping Joe Biden back in the 1970s when he was, you know, against busting or whatever. It was really about what are our needs? Who can best meet our needs right now? How do we engage in harm reduction by getting Trump out of office? Whose presidency, candidacy, whose office 
will we do better when we're organizing and we're appealing to it? And it definitely, and in no way, shape, or form was it Donald Trump. It was an easy decision in many, easy but not easy because of voter suppression, because of confusion, because of the ways in which these Republicans in particular created, I mean, this wasn't the first campaign where they did this, but they created this sort of issues-based voting instead of, like, even full-party voting. Whereas, But I hear what Dr. Taylor is saying about, you know, white women voting for Republicans, but I do think that, you know, like, just focusing on, oh, I don't, I don't like gay people, right? Like, that'll be enough to eliminate a candidate. And the Republicans did that. They, they, they're the ones that pushed that direct single-issue right. voting type. And that's mm-hmm. not, that has never mm-hmm. been black people. We have always been a very pragmatic and very, like, open people to the point where even if we're not the most progressive on, you know, issues within the LGBTQIA community, bare minimum, like, you're going to be in the choir, we're going to respect you in some that's way, right. shape, or form. You know what I mean? So that, that issue, voter, that's not us. So I just, I love that we coalesce around what matters to us. And I just got done crying on camera because, you know, for somebody that lives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I benefited from having a Democratic and very progressive, wonderful governor, Tom Wolf. He fought these Republicans left and right, okay? I benefit. I have, you know, my state representative is a black man, you know, a, a, a very progressive black man. My Allegheny County council person is a black man. We have Summer Lee, who a black woman state representative. She's not mine, but she is mine, you know what I mean? Um, we have Brother Austin Davis. So it's like, and, and they have their own black elected officials coalition. Yeah. So just yeah. like the organizing on top of organizing, on top of organizing, that is how we delivered Allegheny County to you all. And I just want you all to be very, very clear about that. It was not an accident. This was deliberate organizing and planning. And we came through without even knowing that it was going to come down to us. We knew it was important, but I definitely didn't think that it was going to come down to, like, us, us. And it did. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Ellis. Let's go to the thought merchant, pa- Pascal Robert. Good evening to the panel. Good evening, Janice. How are you all? Great, great, great. Um, thank you. For, thank you for having me on the show. Pascal, before uh, you start, I do need to before you before you pre- present your uh, summary. I I do need to do something. Um, my grandson, who is taking a social justice class as a freshman, is now one of your students and he is uh, using our common ground as one of his learning grounds. So I just want to shout out to Miles Hughes. Okay, Pascal, before I forget. <laughs> First of all, I want to give congratulations to those uh, who were working on behalf of removing Donald Trump, whether they were for Joe Biden or against Donald Trump. Because, uh, you know, though my politics are to the left of both the Democratic and the Republican Party, I, can, I would be uh, disingenuous to admit that Donald Trump presented a particular type of noxious threat to the sensibilities of, commu- of communities in this country that have traditionally been disadvantaged by the abuses of injustice, racial and otherwise, economic and otherwise. And I understood the full legitimacy and, uh, and merit in finding a need to create a certain kind of united front coalition to remove Donald Trump. That being said, you know, I, I'm sure all of you are familiar with the Black Agenda Report and our, our position is that we don't trust Democrats, we don't trust Republicans. 
and particularly in the, in the fact that the Democratic Party, since at least 1988 and the rise of the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Council, has taken a strategic position when it came to the black community in this country that alienating the concerns of black Americans was a strategic move in order to ensure greater, greater popularity with the white working class and or the corporate forces of the white uh, elite in finance capital that the Democratic Party has been in bed with for over, you know, the last 25 years plus. So though I understand and celebrate the removal of Donald Trump, I am not sanguine or romantic to the fact that Joe Biden is president because, quite frankly, Joe Biden represents every betrayal of working class, poor, and black people that the Democratic Party has done in my whole lifetime. I'm 52 years old. My brother was born the same year Joe Biden was elected to the Senate, and he literally said, this guy has been in government my whole life. And I said, that's correct. So I'm not saying that we should harp on the negative political history of Joe Biden, but I think that we should be alive to the fact that we still have a situation where the black community in this country gives over 85 to 95% of its political allegiance to a party that has basically, in the post-civil rights era, been more interested in coalescing with the reactionary right than delivering actual policies to transform the lives of working class people, poor people, and black people. In light of that reality, the question to me becomes, what is the strategy to push this Democratic administration to move away from that treacherous legacy in the post-civil rights era to an agenda that will transform the lives of people in the height of a pandemic that is, as Janice has already said, has nullified the life of over 200,000 Americans, in the height of an economic crisis that has caused some numbers of over 30 million Americans to lose their jobs, in the height of a situation where we now have food shortages and people waiting on food lines like it's 1932 all over the country, this is, there is a crisis of capitalism in this country. There's a crisis of legitimacy that, of course, Donald Trump increased and facilitated. But let us make this clear. Donald Trump was a product of a bipartisan, right-left disappointment among American citizens with the status quo of American politics. We had populism from the left with Bernie Sanders, and we had populism from the right with Donald Trump. And the reality of the fraction is, is that the two flanks of capital in this country, the right flank and the left flank of capital, are divided. Already we have the left flank of capital in the wake of Joe Biden's victory telling the progressive flank within its ranks to stand down. You are responsible for the losses we took in the House. Now, the right flank of capital, which are the conservatives, are trying to say, how are we going to deal with Donald Trump and his 70 million voters and 88 million Twitter followers? Can we turn him out? Or are we going to have to find some way to cut a deal? So there's a crisis of legitimacy still. And how the ruling class finds a way to recognize, reconcile these two sides is something that I believe that those who are politically savvy should find a way to 
interject themselves to have more control than to sit down and breathe heavy and party, say, Biden's here, everything's okay, go back to everything as usual, and black girl magic, we have a black vice president. That's the last thing we need to do right now. Okay, let's – thank you, Pascal. Um, And, um, you know, I I, I want to open up your responses to the commentary of the panel by going to uh, Dr. Ellis first, then Dr. Taylor, and back to Pascal Robert. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you chose me first because I did want to respond. I, from what I'm seeing on the ground, this is this is our opportunity to push our agenda. There's no question about the problems of the Democratic Party, but I think that one of the issues that we have to be very clear about is that black women are the base of the Democratic Party, and we have been taken advantage of, and we have not been a part of the leadership, and I'm sure that that's why Stacey Abrams as DNC chair was trending last night, you know, everybody's been giving her, you know, the credit for the work that she did, which she deserves, because even before, it's not like, it's not like Stacey Abrams just, like, lost to Governor Brian Kemp, and then she got fierce. No, she, she created the New Georgia Project. From the very beginning, she showed that, that literally there could be a New Georgia um, she then, you know, once once Brian Kemp did his disastrous voter suppression, you know, and she lost, and start, then she moved on to create fair fight. So I just want everybody to be clear about that. But I just I want everybody to truly understand because it's something that I had to understand. Oftentimes when we talk about the Democratic Party, we only refer to you know basically the people that are considered corporate Democrats. And they are an issue. There's no question about it. But I think that we need to have a more nuanced and, and like, complex and more factual conversation about the fact that black women are the base of the Democratic Party and that what we should be doing. What Dr. Taylor already told y'all in the last show, he made it very, very clear. We already have a precedent. That precedent is the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. We already have the work of Ella Baker and Sandy Duhamer. We don't even have to reinvent the wheel. All we have to do is to turn it, you know, add some oil, sharpen it. And I think that that's where we are, you know, as an organizer myself, as an intellectual myself, as somebody who is directly affected by everything, you know, um, as somebody who's been a change maker. I'm so excited that I've been a change maker, right? I mean, I've been a change maker all my life, but I'm so excited about making this particular change. What I've been hearing on the ground from all of the organizers is that this is our chance. We are ready to take over the Democratic Party. It cannot exist the way that it has been. There is an absolute time for <coughs> And that, like, just all the shenanigans are over. The Joe Biden stuff, I mean, I just, the one thing I always remind people is that Joe Biden, for all of his other flaws, Growing up, you know, he's, I mean, the man is 78 years old. I mean, he was socialized under racism the same way that other people were. However, Joe Biden was boosted by African-Americans and the African-American vote. He literally pounded the podium tonight when he said that African-Americans supported him and that he was going to have our back. Do I believe that? Yes, I do, only because. He is the one who supported the first black president of the United States, and he had every opportunity to, you know, take notes on the back end, 
be disloyal, to cater to white supremacy, to slide in the back door, to write a, a tell-all book at the end. I mean, look, look at Donald Trump's presidency. Joe Biden had every opportunity to do that, and he was an unwavering supporter of Barack Obama. So for all of his other faults, and I do, you know, we, don't, we haven't done this here, but, you know, people have been very dishonest about the 1994 crime bill, who supported it and why. So that's another conversation we can have. But for all of his other faults, Joe Biden came through for the first black president of the United States of America. And if his son hadn't died, he would have immediately stepped into the presidency. And, yes, I do believe that he would have done right by black people. And I think that he'll do right by black people now. However, we ain't sitting back waiting for nobody. As organizers, as leaders, we are taking over. That, that is literally our stated next step. So for Pascal and Robert to say, hey, you know, we, want, we need you all to step up. We need you all to do. That's what we're doing. The, those of us who are, are willing, that is our next step. I think it would be helpful, Dr. Ellis, uh, Dr. Goddess, if you would uh, expand on the uh, the understanding of the uh, crime bill, because I do think people are very um, uh, have been victimized by not having an understanding of that bill and and Joe Biden's. Um, involvement. Oh, absolutely. Because I was in college, I'll never forget it. I think I think that that what we forget is that outside of the 1994 crime bill, the black community was completely ravaged by the crack epidemic. I mean, my own community was ravaged. I live in the historic Hill District of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I witnessed it firsthand. Where I was coming back, you know, every time I came back from college, like more people were dead. And more yeah. people had either they died either either from overdoses or from shootouts. Like it was real. Like and in Oakland, California, the crime was absolutely outrageous. I mean, people were held hostage in their communities. People, you know, menace to society created by black filmmakers, that didn't come out of nowhere. Boys in the hood, that didn't come out of nowhere. And I'll never forget when I read the story about the black man in Chicago, and we know that he was on drugs, even Jungle Fever, as much as, I'll go back to this real quick, Jungle Fever, as much as, you know, it's about an interracial relationship, it is also about crack. To this day, any of us can perform uh, uh, that where he's like, I smoke the TV, mama. You know what I mean? I don't want to go outside and hit a little old lady over the head, but I'll do it. I'll do it. You know, you know, I'll do it. I like getting <laughs> high. I'm to crack kid. We laughed about that, but that was very real, they, that you right. did have people hitting old ladies over the head. Speaking of, you had the, the black man in Chicago who literally was robbing Rosa Parks and stopped and recognized her and said, aren't you Rosa Parks? And she said yes, and he beat her and robbed her anyway. That is what caused the 1994 crime bill. And as Kamala Harris has said so often, the black community is both over police and underprotected. There were black preachers, kids, politicians who were, they were appealing to the Congressional Black Caucus and saying, you all need to do something. You represent us. We need some safety. We need some help. So we don't want to be over-policed, but we also don't want to be underprotected. And at that time period, we were underprotected. And as usual, I know that the Republicans slipped some, slipped some slick stuff in there the same way that they slipped in, you know, capturing Joanne Chesimard you know, Asada Shakur under some bill that was completely unrelated. They always do that. But overall, 
we supported, we, as in black people, as in the Congressional Black Caucus, we supported the crime bill because we were under attack by our own community as a result of the crack epidemic. And we have to be honest about that. This whole idea about Joe Biden, you know, and, and Kamala being, you know, wanting to incarcerate black men and wanting to put us in slavery and do, you know, mass incarceration. That's not true. That was Republican uh, state led initiative that, that they did our prime bill was enacted. And that is what Joe Biden had been trying to explain. He didn't really do a great job of it because he didn't want to fully address it all. Like in a you know in a transparent way, but that's where it comes from, Doctor Taylor. No, I, think, I mean uh, I, I think I, I think Doctor Ellis is hitting on all the all the right points, putting it in context. Um, again, I, I I don't like to like I, I try not to think about the world through the lens of an ideology. Um, I'm a student of black politics. I, I wrote a book on black nationalism. I know all of the major ideologies that we've produced. I know a lot of the different ideologies going all the way back. Um, and as a student of it, you know, it's hard if people have a, a perspective, um, you know, or a doctrine or, 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 or a framework from which they operate because as you critique things as they are, you can only see them in terms of how they fit in that frame, right? And I think what I love about what Sister Ellis, Dr. Ellis has done here is just, you know, had a conversation with us around the kitchen table, not being an academic about it. She just talking to black folks saying, y'all remember, and and, and don't forget. And, you know, we all, I think, probably can tell, especially Brother Pascal said that, you know, he he cited his age. He also can cite a whole bunch of stories uh, and experiences and neighborhoods and disasters that we all saw. Um, but I, and, and, and so it was horrible. There was a 1986 crime bill before that. But, for example, the thing that did a lot of damage to us, for example, mandatory minimums, um, that came from the states. That didn't come from the federal government. That came from the state of Washington first. And I want to make a distinction here between federal law and federal punishment and state law and state punishment, because I think there's a lot of misinformation around what happened here. The... There was no mass incarceration before the 1970s, uh, 1980s. The laws that really drove mass incarceration came from Nixon and LBJ reacting to the violence in the streets and also the assassination of the three key people of that, of that era, right? The, the 1968 Violence and Safe Streets Act, right? And, um, and so that is the beginning. The 1970s were more violent than the 1990s. The 70s were worse than the 80s. It's just a, it's, it was a level of violence. It was the intensity in violence, the concentration of violence in urban communities amongst young black men and, to a lesser extent, Latino men with high-capacity weapons, AKAs and Uzis, in ways that we had never seen before, right? Um, but I think we have to take a step back and, and think, Joe Biden tried to clarify his role in the 1994 crime bill in the interview with Charlemagne Nagard um, on power at the very end of the epi- of their long 18-minute interview. Joe Biden said, "If you don't vote for me, you're not black." That interview. If you go back, it's on YouTube. Watch it. For 18 minutes, they have a great conversation. But as soon as they sit down. Uh, Charlemagne's hostile, so I got, I got, I got, you know, I got questions for you, and he just gets real hostile, and so they they go back and forth for 18 minutes, 
as Biden has to leave, because Jill Biden, I think, has an interview, it's already understood they only had a few minutes to interview, they, they're having a conversation. Biden says he's going to support a black manifesto. That's the word he used. He said a black manifesto, not agenda. He said a black manifesto twice, and don't nobody in America know it because Charlemagne's show and his producers got the soundbite they wanted, and it worked because I, because I watched it. And at the very end, Charlemagne hears Joe Biden say what he said, and Charlemagne keeps begging him back and doesn't even acknowledge it. He didn't even stop to say, did you just say what I think you said? No. Charlemagne, if you watch the clip, keeps saying, Mr. Biden, please come on back. I'll be glad to have you back. I want to have you back. And Biden's like, sure, we'll get back together. And, and so Charlemagne doesn't even acknowledge it. His producers went back, looked at the tape, and said, there it is right there. He said, you're not, if you don't vote for me, you're not black. We're going to go with that. They could have gone with Black Manifesto. He also explained that in the 1994 crime bill, Bill Clinton wanted to add three strikes to it, and Joe Biden took it out. So nobody's talking about that because Charlemagne, Charlemagne's show, you know, made sure we didn't hear it. We didn't hear him clarify that, and we didn't hear him clarify um, this idea of a black manifesto, whether he misspoke or not. He used the word twice. So you know that that to me was 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 critical. But when you look at the crime, the crime, the, the, the 1994 crime bill itself. Let's be clear. I'm not trying to act like it didn't have a national effect at the state level. But I am suggesting to us that it was federal law, and it dealt with federal crimes, and it punished people in federal prisons. And the federal prison population on a good day in the 80s had 175,000 people in them nationally in America. 175,000, while there were 2 million at the time, a million, about 0.7 black million, uh, million people in prison about, you know, about, you know, with a disproportionate number of them being black men and black women, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, so, so just to be clear that when we start talking about um, the, the, the 1994 crime bill, um, yes, it inspired crime bills at the state level, but I'm also, I also open by saying Washington State uh, is the state that comes up with these uh, mandatory minimum sentences and that other states copied Washington to do that. That did a lot of damage. Um, but Nixon and Johnson had already started the process of mass incarceration in the early 60s. It started peaking by the 80s, right? Um, but the 70s, when you start talking about um, the 1994 crime bill, excuse me, we're talking about 175,000 people, and they weren't all black. I'm saying to, to you that the crime bill on a good day did not get the net of majority of black people that were in prison. The majority of black people that were in prison were not in prison because of the 1994 crime bill. The 1994 crime bill was for federal drug offenses. That, you know, that, Thank that's you, Dr. For the Taylor, for let me just finish this last point. At the state level is where you end up with the mass of one point, let's say the other 1.9 million people, most of them are, are disproportionately black. And that you have to look way past Joe Biden to, to account for. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things I think is important when you consider this is that you, the Republican Governors Association, uh, was still working on a Reagan agenda uh, for the Republican Party. And they saw the bill as an opportunity to do damage. And that is the reason why they, that that bill was propagated 
into the states and the governors the Republican Governors Association negotiated with the Department of of, of Justice um, how that bill would be uh, used with within the state court system the state court the state's court system and how it would be used at in in law enforcement so essentially the democrats lost control of that bill and one of the things that they required at the time was that it be associated with key fund federal funding and that's how it all got screwed up. Pascal, do you want to uh, make a comment here? Because one of the things I'd like to the, the the panel to move on to is this whole notion of where we go from here, how we begin to build a unified black political infrastructure to use the capital that has now maybe been recognized. Pascal? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely want to interject on the, on the crime bill and all of various other things. First of all, I would like to say that I appreciate the responses of both of my fellow panelists. Uh, I was in law school when the crime bill was passed, and uh, one of the reasons I'm proud to say that I never voted for Bill Clinton. I despise the Clintons as a descendant of Haitians. Uh, I wouldn't spit on a Clinton if they were on fire right? <laughs> for the damage to those people. I've done to my, my parents' homeland and where my, my ancestors come from. So they are persona non grata to me. But even before that, I realized the treachery that the Clintons were representing because I was very familiar with the pivot of the Democratic Party. And let's make something, before we get to the details of the crime bill, which I'm very, very willing to... I don't want to go into the to, details of it because okay. I want to move on You don't on have to go into the details. I don't want to yeah. go to the details. Mm-hmm. I'm actually not even interested in talking about the details of the crime bill because the, the betrayals of the Democratic Party transcend so far beyond the crime bill that that's just one part. We can go... Every, because the first thing we have to understand is that the pivot of the crime bill doesn't start in, in the 1994 bill. It starts with, the, with the, the, the beginning of the DLC, where the Democratic Party realized, actually starts with the loss of Michael Dukakis, where right. George H.W. Bush basically uses the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the advertisement to make right. uh, Dukakis seem soft on crime. And Bill Clinton publicly stated, particularly that he would never be accused of being soft on crime like Mike Dukakis. Let us not forget that when Bill Clinton won his uh, Democratic Party uh, nomination, he publicly made a speech in front of the Stone Mountain prison behind them black uh, prisoners in yeah. their jumpsuits to announce his victory uh, winning the Democratic nomination. So let's not act that this crime bill is some kind of direct response to the needs of the black community and crime. Bobby Scott, who is an African-American member of the Congressional Black Caucus, opposed the crime bill. The NAACP opposed the crime bill. Jesse Jackson opposed the crime bill. So the notion that there is just some kind of consensus in the black community about the crime bill is incorrect. 
Second of all, even if there was, we have a history of class traders in the black community locking up and treating black poor people like garbage anyway. So that should be no conciliation, the fact that we have black people doing harm to poor and working class black people. That's not a new tradition in the black folk, and we shouldn't be ashamed. We should not deny that fact out of covering for the, the, the charade of we're all in this together, one people, because it happens all the time, quite frankly. So my larger point is that the crimes bill was just one part of the ultimate devastation that the Democratic Party has done to not just black people, poor and working hard. Let's talk about NAFTA. Let's talk about JAT. Let's talk about Joe Biden's bankruptcy bill that removes the ability of people to be able to charge off their student loans from bankruptcy. We can go on and on and on. I don't even get what, what, you want to get started on foreign policy. So, so this what idea do we do what do we begin to be honest about the history here that we're dealing with two two parties that are not our friends? And that's and, and, we, and, and, and see that's where I think that's that's where see I'm with you. I guess my struggle is, and this kind of is with you know brother uh, Dix too. I wish he was here. And I made a comment the other last time. You all heard me say, "What do we do in the meantime in terms of a revolution?" Like the Panthers understood that at some point. You know, again, I think we have to take a step back and realize black America has shown us after the Panthers, after Malcolm, after the 60s, after the 70s, that they they either tired after the slave insurrections or they don't want revolution. They want reform to the point where they can live lives that that are full and total lives. So so I'm I'm just suggesting that, you know, I, I think, you know, I agree with you in terms of the both parties. Cause again, my dissertation was about both parties being problematic. My, my dissertation was called Black Politics in Transition from Protest to Politics to Political Neutrality with a question mark, because I'm asking also, can we find some neutrality? Can we find a strategy, a balance of power, power strategy? I, I looked at 200 years of political science research uh, done by Haynes Walton Jr. that showed a tradition of black political parties, a, a tradition of third strategies, of uh, uh, the moon strategy in, in, in Newark, New Jersey, um, uh, to have a, you know, to be the balance of power between the two major parties. We had an effect in 64. We had an effect in 80. But like Sister Ellis is, you know, suggesting, black people have never, even with Jesse, and I gave, I gave Jesse credit to my students yesterday, Jesse Jackson deserves so much praise right now. For everything that's happened in terms of opening up the opportunities to women, to gays, to, to, to blacks, to working class campaigns, Jesse Jackson opened up the entire democratic structure, brother. And to me, I think we have to acknowledge, this goes back to my point last, class, that last conversation, we have a bad habit of not acknowledging our victories. So we have a bad habit in black culture of looking down on Jesse Jackson. But Jesse Jackson transformed the party system. There is no Pete Buttigieg. There is no... Geraldine Ferraro. There is no uh, Amy Klobuchar. There is no Elizabeth Warren. There is no Hillary Clinton if there is not a Jesse Jackson. And the people around him like Ronald Walton. Right, and the Rainbow Coalition, they opened up the Democratic Party. Black folk did that. And that, I think, Brother uh, Robert, Robert, it has to be acknowledged also within the tradition of what Sister Kelly is talking about is, is, is that, you know, our ancestors had a strategy. Our ancestors had their own wisdom. Now, again, Ella Baker was a communist at one point. Ella Baker was a communist in the CPUSA. She's not a liberal integrationist. She was a Garveyite. 
and she was and she was a communist. And Ella Baker worked within the Democratic Party in the meantime. She used the strategy of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and this becomes a whole background to black power, period. That's, that's what the – black power comes out of all of that. Black power is the result of Ella Baker's uh, efforts. In fact, I say in my book on black nationalism that Ella Baker is the mother of black power, and we need to acknowledge her as such because she was the intellectual mentor of Stokely Carmichael like nobody else other than Martin Luther King. And so wow. I think we need to acknowledge that black folk have modified the Democratic Party. And, yes, I agree with all its problems. I don't belong to the Democratic Party. I've never belonged to the Democratic Party or Republican Party. Amen to that. So, so we're from that. the same politics and the same generation. What I'm saying to you is, it's like the Panthers. They came to realize that other people aren't where we are. And in the meantime, instead of um, asking people to be where you and I are on the independent party or neither party, um, the Panthers did that when they got distracted in talking about Cuba and China and Russia and, and, and France, France Fanon, and none of that stuff fit the black American condition in West Oakland. Right. And so the Panthers ended up coming back into the black community because they started cursing out the preachers. David Hill, you cursed out the preachers so bad in Berkeley, called them all kind of MFs. So um, I, I know you know about this, Miss um, 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 Janice. I know you know about this. David Hill, you cussed the preachers out so bad and just, I mean, vulgar. And, yes, um, and, yeah. and, they, and, and then he alienated I'm going to finish in a second. They alienated them. And then Huey P. Newton understood that they, they had a problem. That, they, that the people, grandmothers in West Oakland, where I live, were not about a revolution. They just wanted to feed their grandkids. And the Panthers had no, they had no connection to the black community when they were still in their revolutionary phase, except among the, amongst the young. When they finally became a threat to J. Edgar Hoover is when they started feeding the people, building the schools, and doing the sickle cell civil, black civil society work. And that's, that's when the right. Panthers became the threat. And so, again, you know, when we start talking about, you know, uh, looking at our, you know, our antecedents, so, so again, our people are not ready for revolution. If they were ready for revolution, the Panthers would have done revolution. The Panthers came back to feeding people and clothing people and educating people in the meantime. And their book, their, their work is called, they, they call the programs, the survival programs pending revolution. So until we get the third party, brother, or no party, until we can get where you and I are as a people, and they're not, and people are not what we are. Black people are Democrats. Black people have captured the Democratic Party. Black people have taken the party and chased the race out of the system since and we don't give them any credit for that. We got to give black but, folks I mean, some recognition that they chased the races out the party and have captured the party. It's, it's, that's a political science term, party capture. They captured the party, brother. I'll, I'll stop at, at that. But I, I no, want to acknowledge what we have done and what we have achieved instead of seeing it purely in terms of political economy. Because black folk ain't with political economy. Black folk are trying to eat. They're trying to find a way to get the police to stop killing their kids, and they're That's not right. down with dialectical materialism yet. So how do we get there to a level of, you know, to a point of, again, the Panthers, Huey said, defected the black community. And they had to get back in touch. And the way they did was through the survival programs, when they met the people Absolutely. where they were. And that's what I'm saying. we got to get people – in other words, we're ahead of the people if we're demanding that the people abandon the, the, the Democratic Party and get to where you and I are as intellectuals, because that's not going to happen. Yeah. So I'm saying we're gonna I've got to humble myself here. i got to humble myself to the here. people. 
We're going to pause huh? here. And, Pascal, I know you want to respond. And, uh, Dr. So Goddess, I. I know you want to res- respond. <laughs> and I'm just saying, at our common ground, we say it every week. You have to meet black people where they are. Thank you for being with us. And for those of you who want to call in and on our listen line, it's 347-838-9852. And we are just getting started. <laughs> My parents wanted to know when I was a Black Panther if I was a communist. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. I'm all about diving. Obama says we're not going to have boots on the ground, but now you got over a thousand soldiers. You know why there's going to be more? Because they're going to start killing some of those that we've already pulled there now. Because if you can't get 30,000 Shiites to stand their ground and they're fully armed, against a thousand Sunnis, and they drop their weapons, drop their uniforms, drop their draws and run, what have you got? Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass. The Alpha Show. The Alpha Show. Fridays, 10 p.m. Just damn. Advanced political pushback talk radio on TruthWorks Network. Three Fridays, he's all about politics. 10 p.m. TruthWorks Network. It's amazing how people can come together by spending time apart. Quest Diagnostics thanks you for doing your part to stop the spread of the coronavirus through social distancing and proper hygiene. At Quest, we're doing our part by establishing COVID-19 lab testing capabilities across the country to better serve our communities and healthcare providers. If you suspect you have COVID-19, talk to a healthcare provider and let's keep doing our part so we can all come back together stronger than ever.
Back to Janice. And we thank you for being here with us at our Common Ground. We're here every Saturday at 10 p.m. speaking truth to power and ourselves. And don't forget that on Friday night, the Alpha Show, 10 p.m. on our channel, TruthWorks Network. Uh, he's all about that politics. He serves hot grits with his politics. We want to thank uh, all of you for being with us. Our panel discussion resuming from uh, Wednesday night in our election 2000 uh, special review, looking at the critical issues facing us on the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as the new administration that will be coming into America in January, and we need to build a political strategies to ensure that we are empowered in the places where we need to be. I'm going to throw this out to the panel, and I know we're going to go to Pascal Robert, contributor to the Black Agenda Report, and we call him the Thought Merchant, um, mm-hmm. and uh, we are... But I just want to throw this out because, you know, um, I am envisioning that by next year this time that black people will be heavily involved in every state around this country using their political capital for referendum politics. Right. There's no reason why by next year this time reparations is not a referendum item before America because that is the way it is going to happen in in any case, no matter what the administration, to force Americans by referendum using black political capital on the issue of reparations. Now, that's not the only one, but but that is certainly ought to be one of the goals. And we're going to go back to Pascal Robert um, from our first page, and he wants to respond to this whole idea of how we build and can we build and with whom we build alliances. Thank you. Brother Taylor, first of all, I want to say that I have a profound amount of respect and admiration for your knowledge 
of black political history. I, I'm a mere student of black political history. I have not uh, achieved the level of dedication to the enterprise that you have. So uh, I tip my hat to you in that regard. And uh, I, I, I understand that we may have a different disagreement, and the disagreement lies in the following. You say that black people have captured the Democratic Party. I believe that black people have been captured by the Democratic Party. Mm. In that, if you read, and I know you're familiar with this book because you are a scholar by politics, We Have No Leaders, African Americans in the Post-Civil Rights Era by Robert C. Smith, forward by Ron Walters. Right. In that book, it basically tells us, and I know you read this book because you, you you can't be who you are if you didn't read that book. No, he's my best friend. In the, he's my best friend in the world. He's, he, he, we're both in San Francisco. He's my best friend in the world. Go ahead. Okay. He basically tells us that black politics was neutralized in the post civil rights era by becoming institutionalized within the Democratic Party. Am I incorrect in my assessment of the? No, book? not at all. But that's exactly what you're right. What you're, right. you're right. Yep. Okay, so when we talk about black people have captured the Democratic Party, I believe that is a fallacy. Black people have been neutralized by the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party, particularly with the rise of Clintonian politics, which actually has precedent with Jimmy Carter, has been intentionally used as a pinata amongst Democrat elites and in the Democratic Party to coalesce to support amongst the white working class and corporate interests, basically intentionally alienating black interests. And this doesn't start with even Clinton. Jimmy Carter even started that process. So when you're telling me that black people have captured the Democratic Party, captured what? How do you capture something that's been premised on not serving your interests for 50 years? Let's get a response from Dr. Taylor and Dr. Well, well, just Ellis. Quick, just quickly, um, the, the genealogy is from Ronald Walters, uh, is the mentor of Robert Smith at Howard University, where Robert Smith got his Ph.D. and and, and Walters had been a teacher. Um, And um, uh, so, you know, that's their connection, and they go directly. So so when you look, sort of go from them, that is where Jesse Jackson's connection is to Ronald Walters um, as well. Ronald Walters advocated an independent black political party, and he wanted Jesse to run independent in 84 and was disappointed in Jesse. And he just went along with Jesse after that and continued to support him harder and harder into the Democratic Party. Jesse's move into the Democratic Party is is highly criticized by Adolph Reed in the book The Jesse Jackson Phenomenon, 1986, where he tears it apart. Yeah, he tears it apart. And so Smith and and, and Reed ways, um, specifically in that, you know, well, I won't won't bother with that because that's too much academic stuff. Well, well, I I just want to jump in and and say that one of Ron Walters' response to what Jesse did in the second run and because he had gotten sucked sucked into the Democratic establishment, uh, did I say that? But is the campaign for a new tomorrow, which was the national effort to bring about a black independent political party? Right. I both Ronald Walters and in. Robert Smith. Both Ronald Walters and Robert Smith are black nationalists. So, so in, their, in, their, in their fantasy world, 
they would both have a black political party. That's what they would. They they were at, uh, at least Ronald Walters was in the middle of Gary Indiana's organizing and everything that happened after that, and the Jesse Jackson campaign. Like I said, Ronald Walters would have preferred, and Robert Smith would have preferred an independent party. At the end of that book, you know, Dr. Smith largely recommends more black nationalism, not not less, and would re- direct. But he also book, says yeah. very importantly earlier in the book that black. I think he says it within the first 20 pages or so, that black people are too ideologically diverse to function for long in a single organization. And so so, so Smith is, is also Cruzian, because the title of that book, We Have No Leaders, comes from Harold Cruz. Cruz um, was answering a question to a student at an event that asked him, I think at the 1974 Little Rock uh, uh, Convention where they were trying to still build a party. And somebody said to him, Harold Cruz, um, something about leaders. And he snapped at the student and said, leaders? What leaders? We have no leaders. And Robert Smith took that, t- that word, that phrase, and made that the title of his book. So, so Smith, Cruz, Harold Cruz and, uh, Cruz and, uh, and Ronald Walters all this would, would agree with you and me, Brother Pascal, that we should be independent of both parties. But they all three end up having to sort of pragmatically, pragmatically adapt to the reality that unless we develop a third and fourth party, we stuck with these, you know, this twiddle-dee, twiddle-dum reality. So I can't blame black folk for, for mobilizing politically within the existing structure of politics. We can't call it the plantation if it's only two. We can't call it the plantation. And when I say party capture, I'm using this political science term where a group dominates a party. They don't rule it. They dominate it like the evangelicals don't rule the Republican Party, but the evangelicals captured the Republican Party. Black folk have captured the party. They don't rule it. Um, But we're on the verge of that, too, when you see James Clyburn and, and, and that's one of the highest expressions of politics black people have ever seen in their lives, ever, in history, outside of Obama and a senator or two. But to see Glenn, James Clyburn wield the power the way he has, you think he don't have something to do with Kamala Harris being on that ticket? That's that right. Brother, you know what I'm saying? So I, I think, think I, at, I, at I some think point – well, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I think James Clyburn has to do more more to do with the fact that he gets over a million dollars from Big Pharma to neutralize Medicare for all, and that everything he does has more to do with the allegiance to them than allegiance to black people. And I'm not a fan of simply having black faces in high black faces in high places when they are basically working out the interests of the corporate forces that ground black people to dust. So I'm no so fan of Clyburn. What should we do? Dr. Ellis is yeah. trying to get Ellis, in here. My turn. It is my turn. It sure is, um, sister. You know, it's like, so I appreciate what, what both of you brothers are sharing because it gives me, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm definitely not, I'm not in any way, shape, or form a political scientist. I don't really know, you know, that much political theory in that way. I don't even like politics like that. That's the irony of me starting to <laughs> But I will say that right now for my generation and as an organizer, as a um, public intellectual as a as a sister who's you know not yet fifty um, we are what i can, what I want to describe the moment that we're in is that we are not leaderless we're actually leaderful and in the last conversation that we had, I talked about how Barack Obama being like the Twitter president 
the way that he democratized the space, the way that he went around the civil rights um, icons, the way that he uh, empowered each individual person and didn't go through the pastors and things like that, even though that made the um, the, the black I don't want to call him gatekeeper because it's not fair to say that. But I'll just say, like, you know, even though he angered the black leadership in that way, he wasn't trying to attack black people. He was trying to break the hold that the Democratic Party had over black America by dominating those persons and institutions. And he did that. He did an excellent job doing that. He had to hurt some people's feelings, including Jesse Jackson. But if Jesse Jackson had never been caught on air saying he wanted to, you know, cut his nuts off, perhaps we'd have a different conversation. But I want to be clear that the democratized space is what opened the door in another way, in a new way for us to flood the party. I This is my first time kind of hearing, you know, like the party takeover. But that not that what the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party was doing, was like establishing leadership and pushing the Democratic Party a certain way? Now – especially when we're talking about how black women are the base of the Democratic Party, there was already a push in 2012 to take over the Democratic Party. Um, To a certain extent, you know, I mean, we haven't taken it over, but to a certain extent there were moves that were made. That's why that group, you know, the colored girls, as they call them, they, you know, they, and I want to say they do it in reference to Isasaki Shange's poem, not colored girls as in takes you all the way back to, you know, the 1950s, et cetera. Um, that's how and why they got so much power. That's how and why Leah Gidry was literally the um, chairman. I forget I forget what her actual title was, but, like, the coordinator, like, the, essentially the CEO of the entire Democratic National Convention. We were already poised. And if it weren't for Hillary Clinton's defeat, we would be in another place. And so now we are in that place. And it was black women, black people, especially black women, that wrote Joe Biden and said, we don't want to wait for a black Supreme Court justice nominee. We want you to choose a black woman for vice president right here and right now, and they cast in their chips. That is how that happened. That was not benevolence from Joe Biden. That was the political power that we asserted upon the Democratic Party, and that is what Dr. Taylor has been talking about. We're in a new place, and I just want to say that it's deep hearing both of you talk, especially you, Dr. Taylor, because – I found myself, I was in Washington, D.C., and I didn't go to Washington, D.C. for Ron Walter's funeral, but I ended up at Ron Walter's funeral because I was in D.C., and I felt that I needed to go. I learned so much about him at his funeral, and I knew him. I knew him, um, but I just, like, the honor, okay? And then the irony is that Jesse Jackson came to Pittsburgh one year when I was a little girl, and somehow, because he came to Freedom Corner and he led a march, from Freedom Corner, I ended up, and I know they let me get this close to him because I was a child, I ended up marching right next to him and walking downtown with him and waving at everybody as though, like, I was a part of the campaign, okay? So we are, like, we are the descendants of these people. So when we're having these conversations, I, I think the other part is the pragmatism and also the fact that I've been exposed to so many black nationalists and I've also traveled the world, right? Isn't revolution, isn't, isn't the idea of revolution that black nationalists talk about so much in creating and governing a black nation, 
isn't that revolution defined by the land we acquire, what we grow on the land, how we feed ourselves, the manufacturing that we develop, how we take care of ourselves, the building of our homes? Isn't that ultimately what it's all about? So I find it very interesting that sometimes we're so ideologically pure that we get pragmatically obscure about how to meet the needs of our people. And for some reason, we don't define caring for our people as a revolution in and of itself. Why isn't that a revolution in and of itself? Like, if we, I, I say this to black nationals, I've been saying this lately, especially because I spent a lot of time in Senegal and Ghana and South Africa. If you are a black nationalist, you actually, there's nothing wrong with that. And I understand the desire and the need to want to build a black nation. Well, I had a great time stepping into these black nations, and they are developing black nations, and they're doing a really wonderful job in many different ways. Why can't you go and, and, and literally help build a black nation? That is a choice, that's, and that's an intelligent choice. It's a substantive choice to actually do that. Right. And yet what I find some black Americans do that are black nationalists or that are so ideologically pure that they, don't, that they are pragmatically obscure is that they live in the, ideolo- the ideological world of black nationalism and then they stay in the United States of America where we do have these two parties, where we don't have a real nation within a nation. We are African Americans, we're black Americans, and we're all over this country. We are still citizens of this country. We still pay taxes in this country. We still work here, live here, play here. And it's like the, this group of people, they want to hold us captive to a fantasy reality that they refuse to participate in to make a reality for our people. I can't stand that type of person. And it's not anything personal, you know what I'm saying, to anybody, especially no brothers or, you know, sisters on this call or even listening. But what I'm saying is, just like Don Henry Clark said, we don't even make our own underwear. So if you want to be real about black nationalism, then brothers and sisters, you can do it. Go do it. Create for us a home away from home. Create a space where we can go and have some respite even. We can act like what white people do. They go to Europe for half the time, and they have their respite and their vacation. Create a space for us. Create a home for us. If you don't want to participate in the American democracy as slaughtered as it is, then don't. But do something. But what you're actually doing is you don't go to Africa. You don't develop any black nation. What you develop is a black nation in your mind, and you right. do nothing for the pragmatism of black people. And then you got the nerve to act like you're the smartest Negro in the room, and you don't even know how to feed your own family. And you criticize the very people that make sure that you survive. And those are our aunties, our uncles, our grandmothers and grandfathers, the, our brothers and sisters in the South, and the pragmatic black women and men who made sure that they put Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in office because they want to see people get fed and have good and quality employment, and they want to live, live, literally, at the height of this global pandemic, they want to live. So we have got to be smarter. And why isn't, I mean, I want all of the, everybody to ask, ask ourselves, why isn't the feeding and the clothing and the quality of life of living, the running water, the, uh, the, the trash pickup, even in the United States of America, if we make sure that our communities have that, if we make sure that our people have that, why isn't that revolutionary enough for you? Right. I'd like to address the question. I'd like to address the question. 
first of all, uh, you know, any of you guys can check my work on uh, Black and Gender Report. I did a over one hour presentation with uh, Dead Poet, Dead, Dead Public Society, a podcast, saying why I am not a black nationalist. I am not a black nationalist. I, I've been, this is coming from someone who is a descendant of the oldest black republic in the Western Hemisphere. Black nationalism is an ideology that I basically feel is not practical, even in a black country, because it assumes that blackness or black skin is a political operating principle. That's a fantasy. That's a fantasy. I think that having melanin in your skin is a political operating principle. Number but, but, two, but, well, I'm hold on, asking, Pascal. I don't think that that um, that's not that was it, saying it's at color. All. It, it's it's not color at all. I am a black nationalist, and it is not That's about fine. color. And okay. My point Ron is Walters, that, who was that, an advisor to the show uh, in the first two or three years that we were doing it, and he was an advisor to to many black talk show hosts. Um, and 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 his black nationalism was about building an infrastructure in right. all of the critical spokes. Right. And this I is where I agree were... with this is where I agree with Robert Smith and my good brother Cedric Johnson who wrote the great book From Revolutionaries to Race Leaders. The idea that black people anywhere, whether it's in the United States, in Haiti, in Senegal, have the same ideological and material needs consistent across a, a collective group of people who have different class interests, material interests, political ideologies, to form one racial ideological block, I also think is a fantasy. So I have an article, I have an article I'm writing right now that critiques Cedric Johnson's book. I'm writing an article right now that critiques Cedric, for the APSR, for the American Book of Science Review, uh, that critiques Cedric Johnson's book and his reading of and misreading of Harold Cruz, because that's who's also important. Again, he's important to this conversation. Ronald Walters, Harold Cruz, Robert Smith were all black nationalists, and they all ended up informing this conversation we're talking about because they're the ones trying to figure out an independent way before blacks attach themselves to the Democrat Party, so you're right on that. But they ultimately find... Like Sister Kim is talking, uh, uh, you know, Kim is talking about is this practical, you know, this, this almost, you know, almost a pragmatic black nationalist politics where you accept the reality. Even the Nation of Islam, right? As much as they talked about leaving and going back to Africa, they never really meant it. And I say that in my book and try to outline the, the history of them just talking and not doing about anything about it, right? But you know, the, the idea that they were going to go back to Africa, they never intended to do it. It was more rhetorical than anything, right? And yet, um, you know, the Nation of Islam you know does nothing so so to me again in terms of going back to africa so when we start talking about you know black power black nationalism the black panther party again as you know the black panther party said we defected the black community with ideology and they went back to the community and fed the people and they reconnected they lost contact with the people in ideology and they came back and started feeding, educating, clothing, and then doing sickle cell testing. Frederick, Fred, Fred Hampton in Chicago, they were doing it in, in, in Harlem. 
they were doing it in uh, Newark. They were doing it in Philadelphia. They were doing it in Los Angeles, right, uh, meeting the needs of everyday black people. And that's when they became relevant. And to me, again, like I said about Ice Cube and them, black folk today in 2020 keep going past the, the mature stage of all these movements and going back to their early stages. So, like, the not effing around with me party is, is walking around dressed like the Panthers in 66 and not mature like the Panthers when they're doing black civil society. What black folk need more than anything as we have this conversation about moving forward is a, a, a deep injection of black civil society. That means all of us on all fronts of black life that take needs, from the elders to the children, whatever the needs are, spiritual, mental, material, economic, uh, social, communal, security, safety in our neighborhoods, you know, turning the gangs into community groups again, getting them back to community groups somehow. There's so much work, Brother Pascal, that's got to be done just for us to live the next 15 years. So that's what I said to Brother Dix the other day. What do we, how do we, let me ask this question first. This is my question to Brother Roberts, Robert, excuse me. How do we get 25 million black people to do one thing together like they did this past Tuesday night in any of our agendas? So my point is black folk are, are there. Let me, brother, let me respond to How do we get them to where things, you and I are? Let me ask you a question. How many things together do you want to do with Clarence Thomas or Candace Owens? Zero. Then, and then you are admitting to me that there are black people that you don't want to yeah, be but together with. There are that, lots of that, black people that you know, don't want to be together with. Yeah, but that's not okay, the no, point. No, this I goes call. back to my point. Every movement has to. Every movement has to. Wait, wait, wait. Let me answer the question. Part of the problem, I believe, with this notion of nationalism, we all one community together, is that we look at black people as if they're a group of people sitting in a diner. There are 46 million black people. There are more black people in America than citizens of Canada. And they unite. Why are we assuming that the multivarious complexity and sophistication of different types and different cultural because different social it becomes irrelevant. of black lives is, is, is fixed on one unified notion that we all are together? Let's hold hands. Let me just respond real quick. Because black people have joined the party. And, there's, and that represents a cross-section of black people across America. And my attitude is, as an intellectual, i got to humble myself, like the Panthers did, and make sure I'm not trying to run ahead of the people. Maybe there's a wisdom in what black women are doing, and that yeah, our yeah. ideologies need to take a back seat. Because the Panthers reached their highest point when Elaine Brown had led them. That's when they started feeding the people the best. That's when they were doing the, med- you know, the, the, the sickle cell testing is when the sisters led that institution. And if, if black women are inspiring the, the Democratic Party and they've continued to move in, and again, I want us to acknowledge Jesse Jackson has everything to do with everything that's going on with black women in the party as they continue, and the sisters that are making leadership, like Donna Brazil and others that are taking leadership. Yeah. Brother P- Pascal, there's so much energy right now in D.C. with black women positioning themselves, and I, I do agree with you. It, does need to come back to what are they going to do for our, our community, I agree, and not just for themselves. But I think we have to acknowledge there may be an intelligence in the, in the, in the fact that this is what they did. And Ronald Walters and Harold Cruz's research, look at his 1986 book, Plural But Equal. He basically gives up on the nationalist idea of any sort of independent party because they failed at it in Gary and everything in between. 
It's okay. We got to do plural politics. We got to be practical. We have to do pluralism in that. America. We have to have a party that, that competes with the two parties. I and, totally and agree with let's that. Let's add too. Let me add but, that that I, I, when I talk about black nationalism, I, I mean I, it's okay that you chose this point, but you chose the least important point of what I was sharing. The idea of building a nation, of providing for your people, of making sure that human security is possible with having food, clothing, shelter, dignity of employment provisions and things like that, I was asking the question, why isn't that considered revolutionary when so many black nationalists claim that that's what they want, either here or there? And that is what black women have been doing for quite some time, and brothers. You know, I don't leave the brothers out. It's just that black women have have been very pragmatic about making sure that we survive, because survival and, and and definitely thriving is revolutionary. Right. And I just I just kind of feel like you know there's there's like some brothers you know and some sisters who they just their idea of revolution is just too far out there, and it's so far out there that they're that they can't be pragmatically responsible and do the right thing for our people. I've seen so many elders just pass away. But like revolutionary brothers and sisters, they just pass away. They never made to that next stage. Meanwhile, I can tell you for sure two things. One, when I was in Ghana, and I'm talking about this the uh, last. Well, I was in Ghana by you know December and January, but 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 taking people in last August, we went to the African American Association of Ghana. And do you know that when people were introducing themselves, they were like, you know, how you doing? My name is Brother Julius, and I've been living here in Ghana for the last 25 years. You know, oh, how are you doing? My name is Sarah. You know, I'm from, I'm from Jackson, Mississippi, and I've been living here in Ghana for the last 50 years. You know what I mean? I, there was an older brother. He said, um, I just got here, and I'm, I'm 70. And he said, I feel like I just put 20 more years on my life by moving. And I'm saying, that's real. That's a reality, and, and and to Brother Taylor's point, I did, you know, see, growing up uh, where I where I grew up and how, and in the era that I did, I was one of those persons who I I, I blatantly heard the Nation of Islam say, "Hey, we, we're looking for engineers and students and all people, you know what I mean, who want to come to Ghana." My ears perked up because I was like, "Wow, this is amazing! We can build a black nation. We can, you know what I mean? It's just, yeah, you know, because yeah. I also grew up in the and era. and I was and and about that." And then, and Doctor 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 Ellis, and to the panel, uh, according to all the exit poll data, Black voters overwhelmingly backed the Democratic candidate by a margin of eighty-seven percent. Yes, and it's not because they're that's who the Black people are. And it's not, and, uh, and they're not for it. Now, not, now like, show me another area of life where black folk do that. See, and that's my point. As a political scientist, that's why it's hard for me to listen. I, again, again, I'm, I'm doing the same, you know, again, I'm doing, how do I say this? For me as a student of political science, it's hard to tell me about the diversity and the complexity and the class diversity and the sexuality and gender and all of that because as a student of black political science, I know it does not matter when it comes time to vote, Brother Pascal. All that you, diversity you talk about that reflects our, revel, you know, our class differentiation, the things that Cedric Johnson talks about, the things that Adolf Reed uh, talks about. One, uh, again, 
they have to show me an example of where blacks mobilize as a class phenomenon around class mobilization as proletarian uh, in the way that we just saw them mobilize as as partisans. We don't have that. Black, you, when you say black people by skin, it's much deeper than skin. It's so much, so much. I'm surprised a black man would say that because it's so, it's so much deeper than skin. It's about the black. It's that. about the black experience. It built into that skin. That skin right. is just the tip of the iceberg of everything that black. I know your, your ancestry is 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 is, is in in, in uh, Haiti, but there's a, and again Haiti was inspiration for everything I'm talking about. Toussaint and 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 John Jacques Destelanis, they are the ones that inspired Nat Turner and Denmark Vesey and Black Gabriel in the 1800s, and that's the beginning of black nationalism in America. That's the beginning I, of I'm it. I'm well aware of that, and that's why I'm critical of black nationalism because I know how it turned out in Haiti. But Malcolm, the, Malcolm, Du Bois, you know Du Bois' ancestry is, is Haitian. Uh, Malcolm, Farrakhan, they all have West Indian, Stokely, okay. they all got West Indian connections. Okay. So, and Cruz critiques this in the Crisis of the Negro Intellectual and talks about it, and that's part of what this whole Adults thing is about right now. Cruz addresses okay. what Adults is all about in, in the book uh, The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual, about the different realities of black uh, groups from, who are immigrant black America, blacks who come to America, and the black predicament born out of the slave predicament of black people. That's part of the tension around Obama, part of the tension around Kamala Harris, right, that their ancestry so. is not grounded in the African American slave experience. So okay. again, um, you know, we, we I like to respond. I like to respond. Ahead, I, like, I, want to, I want to say first of well, all, I respect. Well, why don't I, mean, we do this? I respect both of your positions, but let me make this one one position. One statement. Why don't we do this, Pascal? While you're doing that, take five minutes to respond and also to make a statement or commentary on the issue of within where we are headed. What is the most important thing that we do now? Okay, I will do that. I'm going to take five minutes to respond. You, you are absolutely correct that the African-American community is 87 to 90% dedicated to the Democratic Party. You know what's absolutely, what is also absolutely true? African-Americans are the only ethnic demographic that have that percentage in any one party and you know what is also true? African Americans have some of the worst quality of life statistics of any of those ethnic groups while they're in 80%, in 87 to 90% in that party. So it's fascinating that we're celebrating that black people are all in the Democratic Party and exercising their political freedom to have some of the worst quality of life statistics in this country. Yeah, but there's no political me, science. There's no political science that links partisanship to quality of life. That's Trump. That's Trump. That ain't political problem. science. That's Trump. That ain't political science. Political science is not okay, saying so, so, that so, Democrats so, so, are worse. Because FDR, FDR, the Great Society, um, Obama's economy, Clinton's economy were better for black people than Bush's economy or Trump's economy. I'm not saying um, that black the people Bush, should vote for economy. I'm not saying black people should vote for Republicans. What I'm saying is, what has been the return on investment of 87 to 90 percent of black people voting for Democrats since the Voting Rights Act, when black people right now are asking for reparations and talking about they are a caste like Dalits in India? 
Black people have only had the vote since 1965. It's only been one generation. You got to give us a chance to mature politically. Just hear me out. Hear me out. Black people just got the vote in 1965. The period that Ronald Walters, my mentor, uh, 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 Michael Preston, and Robert Smith, they're all from the same group they're writing about, is the, is the 1980s, they call it the new black politics. That was when Tom Bradley, uh, David Dink, uh, uh, Howard Washington, all the black mayors came around smokes in Baltimore, all of that period, right? And this is when Farrakhan is emerging, Jesse's running in national politics, all of that. But, but that time period had its face, right? When you look at black people in politics, other, unlike any other area of life, and I keep trying to tell people this, I, when, you come to, when I sit in a room with a bunch of intellectuals who do humanitarian, uh, humanities, or talk about you know, transatlantic discourses, you know, and, and the black diaspora, et cetera, you know, it's like they have the habit of trying to unpack um, the African-American decision to organize around race. The Marxists don't even understand that. They don't even understand race right now, theoretically, and it's 2020, and they've been doing it since 1848 when he started talking about it. They still don't have a theory of race in America, and we and, and Cruz gave them a blueprint for it. Cedric Robinson gave them black Marxism, and we still, and I wish Brother Dix was on the line right now. He would disagree with me because he's, he's, you know, he's deeply embedded Brother, in the I'm movement. I'm not trying to tell black people to become Marxist, communist, or anything else. I'm right. telling you that what you're doing is doing so great. Why do you think everything is horrible? So, so my point to you is how do what, half, half of the Democratic states are in have Republican governors? That's the thing. That's the one thing Donald Trump lies. About. When he starts talking about all these awful Democratic cities, I'm like, why don't the Democrats say, look at the re- fact that they have Republican governors, most of them, in many cases. Illinois, yeah. you want to talk about Chicago, Blagojevich, Ryan, three of their governors went to prison recently. Three of the four last governors they had in Illinois. And they were all Republicans. All Republicans went to jail. I'm not, telling, I'm, not telling that, I'm not telling black people I'm not telling black people to be Republicans either. Okay. okay. I'm saying that. Um, so what do we do then? Ask a question. Mm-hmm. He asked a question. What do we do, Brother Pascal? What, what, what you do is you split I'm listening. You, so, Dr. You do Ellis, we're, we're, on a, we're, we're on a clock here. Dr. Ellis, <laughs> I want to give you a chance. I want to give you a chance to uh, summarize and, and talk about what's important for us to do moving forward. Right. Who are our well, allies? How do we build the machine? Yeah, I mean, I, to me, I just think we are we are doing it, and we just need to keep going. And that is black-led organizations that have a very pragmatic approach to meeting the needs of black people where they are, black however so defined, and acknowledging the reality that all black lives matter. In the march that I attended today, we had so many different people from so many different um, areas of black life. You know what I mean? That's the, you know, that to me, that is just the smartest thing for us to do, the most revolutionary thing for us to do. And when we talk about what we have received, I, I just told you that black women cast get the vice president of the United States of America, who openly says, thank you to black women. When she says that on stage, and when you have Joe Biden literally pounding the podium to say, it's African-Americans that put me in this office, they have plans. And guess what? We have plans. We are not going to be dependent 
upon Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. But we got some friends in high places, and we have to watch out for this white backlash. You know they're coming. You know they're coming for us. You know they're coming for uh, Joe Biden. You know they're coming for Kamala. They're going to try to stop every single thing. We have to press on. You cannot have a pessimistic and an unrealistic approach to the Democratic Party to, to, to recite their history, and then you don't have a future and a vision. That is people who are extremely I never said I don't have a future or a vision. They live in, then, hold on. They live in an ideology, but they're not doing anything on the ground for black people in a very real way. Like, I literally deliver food to people. And I deliver food to everybody, but I deliver food um, with, with the idea that African Americans in the city of Pittsburgh only own vehicles at 25%. Wow. And meanwhile, private food distributions were the best, the most amount of food, um, the best delivered, the safest, and especially during the middle of a global pandemic. And so we filled in the gap. Is that revolutionary on a politically ideologically ideological scale? No, but we're still taxpayers. It is our food. It's our money, and that is something. I want. I just. I just want to say I agree with Dr. Roberts. We are not in disagreement. I agree with him. Um, It's just that I would just ask him to help, sort of help me think through, like I would ask Brother Dix, how do we create the structure, or the beginnings of the structure for the, the the you know for the kind of. A development we want to see because it's all about black political development right and so how do we get to where we want to be I, I just want us to acknowledge that black folk like i was trying to say have only had the right to vote legally fully since 1965 black women for sure by 1965 with the voting rights act in terms of it being protected so we're only a, we're only a full political generation away from when we got the right to vote the idea that we've gotten the black black senators black congressmen and women, record number of black people in Congress right now. We got black women mayors around the country in major cities across the country. And that we also elected a black man president, even though his policies, we can debate that on a separate conversation. At right. least acknowledge, Brother Pascal, that that's a giant leap in 40 years. And that black women now have, now have gotten the hands that gotten inside the party on a major level is another stage of this. And we have to let it take its course before we can condemn it, because it might be, like, like Sister Kim is trying to say, it might be the, 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 the alternative to violent revolution in terms of just That's having right. practical revolution, evolutionary revolution. Okay, right. we've got, we've got uh, not a lot of time, but we still have to get to the idea of what what would a with the political currency that we just used in our performance to elect um, Joe Biden, what does that infrastructure look like, no matter where it is? Now we know I'd like that to address. I'd like to address that. Yeah, hold on, hold on for a minute. Um, um, we know that we are going to face the 2022 midterms, and the Republican Party never goes home. They never go home. They're they're all they're scheming, they're manipulating, they're putting together. Their machine continues to move. The Democratic Party, on the other hand, has um, uh, ownership or claim to our political currency. 
What does the infrastructure look like moving forward? Who are the like allies? How do we bring how do like we bring the black left and all those little things that's going on, all these movements together? Pascal, I'll give you uh three minutes, give Dr. Taylor three minutes and Dr. Ellis three minutes and we've gotta get out of here. I want to make it very quick. It's very simple. The biggest black political malpractice that has happened in the last 10 years was black people aligning with the centrist neoliberal corporate wing of the Democratic Party to elect and elevate Joe Biden in the primaries and not go with the most transformative policy, whether you like him or not, being offered by Bernie Sanders. I'm not a fan of Bernie Sanders. I'm a fan of an agenda that brings us to a public goods form of governance. Since we're here and Sanders is gone, forget about it. I'm not crying tears at him. What do we do? People who care about feeding black people, because I'm not asking for revolution either, they should immediately move those who are of similar mind to support the most progressive faction of the Democratic Party, the AOCs, the, uh, you know, Ilhan Omar, the progressive faction of the Democratic Party, who knows everything I'm saying about the treachery of the corporate Democrats, right. which black people have been in bed with for 25 years, abandon them, even the black ones of the Congressional Black Caucus, okay. like Hakeem Jeffries, and move to the left in the Democratic okay. Party. Okay, Dr. Ellis. We're going to Dr. Ellis. Thank you, Pascal. Um, I think that the answer is to take over the Democratic Party, as I said, and it is not in any way, shape, or form to follow the white left, including Bernie Sanders, in any way, shape, or form, precisely because he doesn't have the answers for us. Bernie bros are extremely toxic. They're sexist, misogynist, and the leaders leaders are the black men and women who pushed – over these last 12 years, this leader full revolution that we have literally at our hands, we are holding it in our hands. And what okay. we need to do is take over. That's it. Okay. okay. Uh, just Dr. quickly, um, I think uh, blacks and Democrats, um, you know, we are stuck with a two-party system. And until we get a three-party system, I'm not listening to criticisms of black people in the Democratic Party. I'm sorry. Until we get three parties and black people stick to the Democrats, then I'll, then I'll say you yeah, have a problem here. But we only have two. Everybody in America, every constituent group, black and white, gay and straight, you know, advanced, wealthy and, and not connected, all have the same two-party system to work with. So we can keep talking about the, the limits of black politics within the two-party system and not talk about a third party, which means we're just going to keep on going around in circles until so we're really, really not talking about new party structures like Ronald Walters was and creating them at the local level as a beginning point, then we're just talking. So, again, blacks and Democrats, the, the black problem with, with the, uh, of the Democratic Party is the racism, racism of the Republican Party. The re- right. Republicans give them no choice, and that's, I'll stop there. Well, I think and that I'll, one of the things – go ahead, Kim. I didn't take- I, did, I already suggested from the last show that I really do love the idea of our black party. I think that it is shaped and fashioned by both intellectuals and elected officials and grassroots organizers. They're all black. It's black led. And even though Diddy messed up the rollout, he did put a significant amount of money to our black party. And it is in the protest tradition, in the tradition of Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer and the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. It's right there. The answer is right there, and it's in our hands right now. We just need to move forward. Well, I, I, I think that one of the things is that we have to be aggressive. 
We have to be uh, hardy in our education of black voters. Uh, We cannot continue to be voting against someone. We have to become policy wonks. We have to be activists in our own communities. We have to be the overseers of who is in the leadership and what are they doing in local and state government. We have to target elected officials who are not performing, whether they are black, white, or in between. In terms of um, our three panelists, Tonight, I think that if you continue this discourse, if you continue to help our people, as a black nationalist, I always say our people, mm-hmm. um, that we need to be, we, the, the first thing that we need to do is we need to have black political academies in every community where black people spent their black uh, political capital. And we need to begin to organize, not people who want to run for so, so much who want to run for office, but people who want, who want to know how their government works. So I, I, I really, I, I, so much, I so much appreciate uh, each of you joining us in this four hours of discussion, and I think we need to continue it. We certainly, uh, I have been having this conversation since 1985 on a microphone with some of the best black thinkers, writers, scholars, and activists that the black community in, the, in America has created. And some of them are people that you mentioned tonight. And I think that we've got to have thought leaders who can represent uh, the, 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 the educational, intellectual needs of the black political body. So thank you so very much, each of you. And you're going to come back. <laughs> I know you're coming back. Part three, part three. Let's do part three. <laughs> brother, brother Dick's gonna be mad. He heard this conversation and he missed out on it. We used to talk about his, his ideology. <laughs> Dr. James L. Taylor, Pascal Robert, and Dr. Kimberly C. Ellis, also known as Dr. Goddess. Thank you so very much. And for those of you who have been listening, thank you very much. And I know. I never, you're, you're cussing me out because I never get to the calls. But it's all good. <laughs> Next week at Our Common Ground, Dr. Duchess Harris is an African-American academic, author, and legal scholar. She's a professor of American Studies at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. And she specializes in black womanist 
feminism, U.S. law, and African American political movements, and she's she's a political scientist too. Saturday. She's my friend. I know her. She's a political scientist. Yeah, for the record. <laughs> yeah. So Duchess Harris is going to be joining us again here at our common ground next Saturday night, and I hope that all of you will be right here speaking truth to power and ourselves. Thank you for being with us. Thank Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I think it has to do with organized greed, organized hatred, and organized corruption. Not just in the White House, but it's the ways in which Wall Street domination, the ways in which the Pentagon, military and money, big military and money have come together and are beginning to suck out the rich energies of one of the great democratic experiments in the modern world, the USA, and all of its flaws. These democratic elements and democratic practices seem to be so weak and feeble. Well, I think America has to acknowledge itself as an empire, make the connection between the, militariz- the militarizing that's taking place domestically, police, mass incarceration, and the 800 military bases, and the 211 interventions in 67 countries since 1945. That connection between militarism abroad, militarism internally, needs to be wrestled with something that Martin Luther King Jr. understood very well before his death in 1968. The 5th of November forever in our memory. His hope was to remind the world that fairness, justice, and freedom are more than words. They are perspectives. So if you've seen nothing, If the crimes of this government remain unknown to you, then I would suggest that you allow the 5th of November to pass unmarked. But if you see what I see, if you feel as I feel, and if you would seek as I seek, then I ask you to stand beside me, and together we shall give them a 5th of November that shall never, ever be forgotten. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. For all of you that have joined us in our chat room, we thank you as well. I'm Janice Grant. Join us each Saturday at Our Common Ground. I'll be listening for you, speaking truth to power and ourselves.